Open your Bibles when you have them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6. My name is Josh. If we haven't met, um, I am part of a team of folks that help lead Van City Church. Last week, I uh, was back at the church that planted us to teach for a weekend, which was great fun. It was awesome to be there. Um, But it's also kind of strange. Abby and I were both finding ourselves asking one another, what the heck is going on at Van City? This is bizarre and and. And what's going on? Are they just singing and dancing? We have no idea. Uh, I was asking for pictures, not because I doubted the authenticity of the gathering actually taking place, but who knows, you know, when you're not there. Anyway, it's great to be back. So if you're new to Van City, we're a church on a collective journey together, trying to figure out what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. It's something we talk about quite a bit. And part of that journey has, at least for us, included this long, ongoing trek through one first-century biography of Jesus of Nazareth called Matthew, because we want to put the teachings of Jesus into practice. But in order to do that, it stands to reason that we need to know the teachings of Jesus and to know them well and to know what they actually mean. Now, before we begin, a brief word on what is to come. Uh, Ever the fan of controversy myself, few things pique my interest quite like a warning, a disclaimer, you know, it's like when they issue a barf bag or tell you, you know, if you're pregnant or nursing, you can't go on this route, whatever. So here's my hook. Here's my clickbait. Uh, tonight's teaching is about money and possessions. And among theologians and Bible scholars, there's a spectrum of opinion and belief and nuance when it comes to exactly what is expected of disciples of Jesus in regards to the stewardship of money and possessions. And even amongst our own team of leaders and elders, there's there are differences and nuances in the way that we work out or even emphasize elements of the complicated content found in Scripture. So, tonight we arrive at something of a crossroads. We could, I realize, pad tonight's teaching and tonight's content so as to prevent any offense and to keep us all quite comfortable. But to my estimation, Jesus seemed to deliberately work for the exact opposite when he preached. So tonight's teaching is complicated. It isn't easy. But we're going to work through it together, I hope, with what will be a humble willingness to go where the teaching of Jesus leads us. So are you guys ready? You ready? Great. Thank you. In March of 1993, South African photojournalist Kevin Carter traveled camera in hand to Sudan, a country that was ravaged by famine. And one morning, as the story goes, Kevin happened upon a starving toddler who had doubled over from exhaustion on the long trek to the nearest feeding center. Uh, Ever the man of his craft, Kevin knelt before the scene, he lifted his camera, and he took a photograph. But just before the shutter snapped, a vulture landed several feet in the distance with its black eyes locked on a potential meal. So Kevin took the picture, he gathered up his equipment, and he walked away. The photograph, titled The Vulture and the Little Girl, was later sold to the New York Times and printed in newspapers all around the world. And the following year, in 1994, Kevin Carter was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for this frozen moment of suffering he committed to film in Sudan. A few months after that, he drove his truck to a river where he used to play as a child, He strung a length of hose from the exhaust to the passenger window, and he died of carbon monoxide poisoning at the age of 33. Like many suicides, Kevin left a note, his last words to the world, and in it he wrote this, I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain of starving and wounded children. 
And though the image appeared on the screen for only a brief series of moments, I suspect a great many of you, whether you'd seen the image previously or not, will be similarly haunted by Kevin's photograph. And the reasons, I think, are fairly obvious. You know, even the coldest among us tend to feel a pang of discomfort at the sight of abject human suffering. But I wonder if, in a room like this, on an evening like this one, fixed in the midst of a shopping season and gifts and parties and luxury, I wonder if that frozen moment of suffering alone is enough to make some of us cringe and sigh and shake our heads and close our eyes? Or is it also our knowing that while most, if not all of us, are not presently starving to death, elsewhere in the world, a child can collapse in the dust with a hooded vulture skulking in the distance? And believe me, when I say this, this isn't a setup that's intended as a guilt trip, or a cheap emotional tactic. I don't mean to make you feel bad about your situation over and against the situation of someone in the past, but I am interested in the implications of having money and having stuff. You and I are, in many ways, like Kevin Carter, in that we occupy a world in need, but we occupy it as those with plenty. And I say this, again, not to shame us. Most, if not all of us, had no say in being born as Americans or a current socioeconomic status, give or take. But I want to ready us for a question. And that question is, what does this mean for disciples of Jesus? Is it okay to be born as someone with a lot in a world with others who have next to nothing? Is it not okay? Is it something else? And I want to talk about what it means to have a lot when many in the world have very little or nothing. I want to talk about what having a lot does to our humanity. And we will get to those ideas by way of the scriptures. Now, Matthew, as you know, is one among four first century biographies of this controversial figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. And beginning in chapter 5 of Matthew's biography of Jesus, this ever-provocative teacher begins to offer what is essentially his manifesto, for life in what he constantly calls the kingdom of God. And even a brief sampling of the topics broached provides more than enough to make every single one of us stirred and frustrated and inspired and convicted because Jesus talks about anger and he equates anger with murder. And then he talks about lust and he equates objectifying women with infidelity, with adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about the integrity of our words and actions. He talks about nonviolence. He talks about loving enemies. And then Jesus begins to warn his disciples against doing good stuff, acts of generosity and spirituality, spirituality but motivated for the, by the approval of other people. From there, Jesus will address something that, like false righteousness, doing good things for the motivation of others, this thing that Jesus is about to talk about will corrupt his disciples if they do not embody a better way. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6 and read, beginning in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The implications for this small text are incredible. So let's take a closer line-by-line look as we figure out what the heck this means for you and I this evening. Now, 
Several scholars argue that the opening line, do not store up for yourselves, is perhaps better translated as stop storing up for yourselves, meaning Jesus' words are less of a hypothetical warning, and they're actually more of a command for his disciples to stop doing things one way so that they might begin to do them differently. And that command deals with treasures on earth. Now, treasures are, in essence, the things that we keep because of the value that we place on them. To have treasure is really part and parcel of the human condition. Even small children who cannot fathom wealth or the very poor who have none, they still know what it means to treasure something. Even Tom Hanks had Wilson. And Jesus here mentions the types of treasure that, in his words, are on earth. And by this, Jesus means tangible or, in some cases, intangible things that we tend to treasure, but that are, by their very nature, finite or perishable. Money is the obvious example. Possessions is another one. Uh, I I would argue this could go as far to include certain types of relationships or your reputation or your career in some aspects. Even your precious uh, Instagram accounts will go the way of MySpace and Friendster eventually. You guys remember Friendster as a thing? If you don't, let that be a lesson to you. That's what's going to happen to your Instagram account. (laughs) And it will perhaps be the best thing that could happen to a great many people. Treasure on earth is finite because, Jesus says, it can be destroyed. And he uses examples, moths and vermin, or it can be stolen by thieves. Some of your Bibles may render that second word as rust rather than vermin. And really, it probably refers to an animal pest. The majority of translators tend to agree. But the word image works either way. If it's rust, then it destroys precious metal and currency. If it's a pest, on the other hand, it could be like a nibbling mouse that chews rich fabrics or a woodlouse that destroys a protective chest packed with valuables. When what the moths and the vermin or the rust will do to your treasure is likely translated in your Bible as destroy. And that Greek word is aphanizizo. And more literally, it means to make something disappear. And this is about more than just damage that will be done to your treasure, but that your treasure on earth will be no more. By one means or another, destruction is coming for your treasure on earth. Moths and vermin will devour your precious stuff. A thief will break in and steal it. And notice in the text, Jesus seems to list these less as possibilities and more as inevitabilities, meaning you can't take it with you, as the expression goes. And Jesus' audience would have known this well enough. Banking actually existed in the first century, at least in its embryonic form. Um, But it was mostly inaccessible to Jesus' audience, or they did not trust it. So instead, money was kept hidden throughout the home, and consequently, valuables were more vulnerable to decay or to loss or to theft. And strikingly, Jesus seems to describe them as more than just vulnerable, but ultimately, they are doomed. It is, I think, quite sensible then that Jesus would command his disciples not to waste their time on an endeavor that will be, in the end, for naught. Instead, he offers an alternative. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the wording is a bit tricky for us. If you grew up in the church, the term treasure in heaven is likely something of a platitude used to describe you know, the outcome of thankless good deeds. Uh, I'm from Georgia, and we used to say things like, man, cleaning up after the potluck is no fun, but treasure's in heaven. Uh, and if you haven't grown up in the church, the term is likely just as confusing. But really, what we need to get is this is not a statement about an eventual reward in an afterlife. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. As with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine that Jesus means, don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. Heaven here is where God is right now. 
and where if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present, not just in the future. So Jesus is not referring to a system of reward in which his disciples will forego the idolatry of money and possessions so that when they die and they float up into the clouds, they'll finally get something better. In fact, uh, in Matthew's gospel, the word heaven often acts as a surrogate for the word God. Jesus is talking about having treasure in God, an eternal investment in the things of God right now, over and against an investment in finite comforts and security and having stuff. Your treasure on earth is doomed. Your treasure in God is not. And the text concludes with one of the more famous sayings of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there are a number of ways to render these words very plainly uh, for our purposes. One such way is probably something like, the way you spend your money reveals what is most important to you. Or, If you'd like to know the true character of a person, look at their bank statement. And it's so striking to me because Jesus seems to be pitting two dispositions, one against the other, other, as if only one can survive. The valuing of money and stuff against the valuing of God. And I would argue that he does this with intentionality because they cannot coexist. There are things that you believe matter to you. Things that, when asked, you would describe as your values and your passions and your loves. And perhaps you detail such a list with some accuracy, but a far more revealing way to the truth would be by posing the simple yet terrifying question, how did you spend your money this month? And to wade even further into the deep water, allow me to invite each of you into a bit of a mental exercise. Now, I'd like to preface said exercise with my very sincere insistence that what follows is not in any way a guilt trip, It's really what I hope will be a shared adjustment of perspective that will, I hope, help us sort out the implications of this text. And I'm right there with you guys. I'm not saying that I'm any different or any better than any of you guys. This is for all of us. Now, depending on the study consulted, somewhere over 1 billion people in the world live on less than $1 per day. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that before. About 3 billion people live on less than $2 per day. Um, Some statistics suggest that as many as 20% of Americans live below what we call the national poverty line. Now, with those facts in your mind, consider for a moment your stuff. Consider for a moment the fact that even in a room of of this size, I realize it's not humongous, but there's a, a good few of us here, it stands to reason that the vast majority of us did spend more than $7 this week, or every week for that matter, much more in most cases. I know I do and did. Many of you arrived here in a car, if not all of you. Some of you own more than one car. Uh, Most of you, if you do lack a car, you only do so by personal preference. Um, Most of your homes have heating, I hope. Uh, The only reason that you don't have air conditioning is because of this bizarre myth held so preciously by Pacific Northwesterners that you don't even need air conditioning. It's only hot, like what do they always say? It's only hot like one or two days out of the year. This is a lie, of course. It's It's hot for like five months out of the year. It's called the summer, and it's miserable. We should all have air conditioning. On this, I will not budge. Um... But I digress. (laughs) We have laptops and we have smartphones. I'm using an iPad to do my teaching right now. We have books and movies and televisions and streaming subscriptions. We dine at restaurants with some regularity, some of them quite nice. We choose from an endless parade of coffee options served at an endless parade of coffee shops with near identical (laughs) decorative aesthetics in most cases. Most of you had breakfast and lunch 
today, or some of you had snacks uh, or dinner already. You have many outfit, outfits and accessories from which to choose your day's attire. You have an apartment or a home. You decorate that home with trinkets. You populate it with furniture and appliances. And of course, many, if not most of us, or maybe even all of us in this room, have known some level of financial adversity. I get that 100%. You've endured challenging seasons, and you've faced debt, and you've pinched pennies, and you've been in a situation in which you had to ask yourself, how will we get out of this? And it wasn't easy. It was hard. And these are very valid hardships. I realize that in terms of just getting by, not all of us have had it easy, regardless of the context and our socioeconomic status. I don't mean to discredit or undermine that in any way whatsoever. And really, I'm right there with you guys. I know for sure there are folks in this room who have faced financial hardship that dwarfs my own. So I get that just because comparatively we have a lot doesn't mean that it's always been easy. I get that. But there is a difference between most of us and the rest of the world. When most of us talk about being poor, we only mean that we have very little in a context that is outrageously wealthy compared to most human beings on earth. And that's my point. I think it's an important one. Compared to a huge swath of the human population, most of us are very rich. And I think a common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence because the single person or the young family or the college student that's surviving on ramen or whatever, they imagine themselves to be poor, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to much of the world. Or the upper class looks above them and observes the super rich and they think of themselves as poor. The middle class observes the upper class, and they think of themselves as poor, and on down the economic ladder it goes. And yet, if you eat food, or drive a car, or live in a home, or frequent restaurants, or decorate your homes, or enjoy basic creature comforts, or even just one or two of the things on that list, then you are rich by a global standard. Most of us are rich. But... The teacher that we follow had some interesting things to say about being rich. Like several billion modern residents of earth, Jesus is actually depicted in the Gospels as having almost nothing. (laughs) What What food Jesus eats, he received by fishing or farming or donations or, you know, he like miraculously generates food in some cases. When Jesus wants to make a point about money, he has to ask someone else to bring him a coin just so that he can make the illustration. And of course, Jesus was exposed to folks with plenty. He visited the homes of other people daily. He met and interacted with wealthier Jews and Romans. He sat in their villas. He knew of their plentiful food and their entertainment. Extravagance was not foreign nor unheard of in Jesus' day, but Jesus warned against it. And this is important because as with every radical teaching packed into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asking that his apprentices follow in his example and do what he did. Jesus requires simplicity from his followers because he himself exemplified simplicity. Jesus demanded that his followers prioritize the poor because God prioritizes the poor. But listen, following Jesus does not require slavish imitation. You will not become like Jesus in every single way. You know, to cite the easiest examples, Jesus was a man. He was a Galilean Jew in the ancient Near East. Many of you, thankfully, aren't dudes. Way to go. Many of you, I venture a guess, aren't Jewish. Uh, Jesus was, we think, a stonemason by trade. I doubt many or any of us are stonemasons. If you are, way to go. 
All that to say, Jesus' life of specific and deliberate uh, poverty in some cases is not necessarily an imitation requirement in the specific sense, but his example of unconcern for wealth is, I think, a command for his disciples. Thus, refraining from storing up treasures on earth does not require that you neglect responsibilities or not have a job or not pay your bills or not pay taxes or, you know, not have food for your family and yourself. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't have a savings account, you can't have an income. I don't think so. But it is our understanding of money and stuff, our relationship with it, that will have to change if we follow Jesus. And interestingly, there is a living tradition within the modern church that understands financial prosperity as a sign of God's favor, as a sign of God's blessing over your life. And this is kind of weird uh, and interesting because that notion was, isn't new at all. In fact, Jesus himself was among contemporary rabbis who translated certain passages of the Torah, the Bible of Jesus' day, to promise financial gain to obedient children of God. And this is worth mentioning because Jesus was aware that there were people who believe God wanted his kids to be rich. And he knew that full well when he stood up and he taught that his disciples were to embody a lifestyle of simplicity. And if you recall, Jesus doesn't understand himself to be rewriting or undoing the Old Testament. He understands himself to be fulfilling it. Jesus believed that the Torah warned against the often fleeting nature of riches and valuing them. One such passage from the wisdom literature reads thusly, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And I love that word image. And this is one easy example. We could be here all night. Again and again, the Old Testament warns against the idolatry of money and possessions. It cautions against the danger of accumulation for accumulation's sake. And the Old Testament constantly upholds God's great concern for justice, for the need to distribute excess in order to care for those with very little. And when you begin to study this passage that we read earlier, you see that commentator after commentator notes that built into Jesus' command to pursue treasures in heaven is the idea that in God's economy, those with much will care for those with little. In fact, one scholar I read this week actually makes space in his footnotes to repent of not emphasizing that dimension of the text in an earlier edition of the volume in question. He wrote this, The most concrete, practical way to have treasure in heaven is to make the life move of economic divestment for the sake of investment in the poor. In the first edition, I did not sufficiently stress stress this liquidation of assets for the sake of the poor meaning of our text. And now see myself called by the goals, this set of teachings, to investigate a new kind of economics. I was called by the earlier commands in the Sermon on the Mount to investigate a new kind of politics. Jesus challenges his readers on so many fronts. He is constantly, as the idiom goes, in your face. I could have easily cut off that last sentence. I thought it was so funny that I decided to include it. Jesus' earliest disciples actually followed in his his example. And not only that, they utilized his same word imagery, later writing this in the New Testament. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. 
You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Yikes. What I'm getting at is that the warning of the dangers of wealth and accumulation uh, are well represented throughout the Bible. So what are you and I to do with this? Are we to own nothing? Are we to request pay cuts at our jobs or sell off all our belongings and give to the poor, as Jesus specifically asked at least one guy? Before we end this evening, I'm going to propose a radical shift in our understanding of money and possessions, as well as a few uh, practical methods of embodying this new lifestyle. So hang in there with me for a few more minutes. Let's begin with just a nice softball. I don't believe disciples of Jesus are permitted to possess anything. Uh, Now, (laughs) I don't believe that that means we can't legally own things or have bank accounts or homes and so on. Uh, Greg Boyd actually says it really well when he puts it like this. Jesus tells us that unless we give up all our possessions, we cannot be a disciple of his. I don't interpret this to mean that we can't legally own anything, since most of the disciples he was speaking to continued to earn money and live in houses. But it does mean we can't consider anything we legally own or any money we legally earn to be our possessions. They belong to God. And as such, we are called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. Now, I do want to make a little caveat uh, that I am not saying this, (laughs) which is a popular way of putting it. Hey, listen, it's not your money and your possessions that are a problem. It's not money and possessions that are troublesome or dangerous. It's only your disposition, and that's it. I actually believe personally personally, that money and possessions are problematic. One theologian put uh, things this way when he wrote, to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it's not wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is clear. Wealth is a problem. Scottish philosopher Alcidera McIntyre observed this. Riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of heaven. And he is referencing If you recall a teaching of Jesus where Jesus actually says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich people to inherit, than a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but really, really hard. And I believe there's a strange paradox to which the disciple of Jesus must aspire to live as though one has nothing, even if they have very much. To keep the things you own from owning you, you have to let them go. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And here's what I mean. Uh, An example that I could conjure up easily when I was writing this story is uh, from my previous life. For about a decade, I'd traveled around the world playing music. And during my travels, I happened to meet this fellow in Southern California. And he had learned of our humble lifestyle of living in a van and surviving on $5 a day, which is what we did. And this gentleman invited us to stay at his home. He had never met us. We'd never met him. The only thing he knew about us was that we, were, we had immediate need of a floor on which to sleep. And he was not what you would call a poor person. He lived in an enormous three-story home within, within this like textbook Californian suburb. His home like had this ornate stone jacuzzi with its own television. He had a garage full of scooters and motorcycles. He drove a Hummer. Um, and the first time I ever set foot in this guy's house, 
He and his wife immediately set to work preparing this elaborate dinner for us. He handed me the keys to his Hummer, which is, I tried, it was a challenging thing to operate, um, and a wad of cash. And he said, why don't you guys go out, see a movie, and have a good time? Here's the key code to get back into my house, come back whenever, stay as long as you want. And when we eventually left his house, after enjoying it for several days, um, he looked me dead in the eye and he said, tell everyone you know that might have need of my house and my stuff to come see me, give them my phone number. And we did. And he had them over as well. See, ordinarily the things you own end up owning you. But this guy, though he had done quite well as I think, you know, a landscaper and a a stonemason of some kind, he seemed uninterested in the preciousness of his things beyond the fact that he could share them with strangers. And I've come to believe that many of us are not ready for that level of freedom, at least not yet. To explain, let me borrow a scene from The Simpsons. This is going to help you guys so much and bless your life for the next couple of minutes. Um, When Bart Simpson signs up for karate class, you ready for this, Cam? (laughs) He's disappointed to learn that a tremendous amount of training and research precedes all the exciting stuff in karate class. So he asks his teacher, he says, hey, sensei, when do we break blocks of ice with our heads? And uh, his sensei replies, first, you must fill your head with wisdom, then you can hit ice with it. (laughs) You don't think that's funny? Watch more Simpsons. It'll do good for yourself. Many of us, I think, would prefer some application of Jesus' teaching without having to first sacrifice our comfort. But to be a wealthy person who is not owned by your wealth, I believe personally, is often a feat that is accomplished by the very mature or what we would think of as like the black belt disciple of Jesus. And there is such a thing. It is actually something that you can and should aspire to. And you can begin that journey right now, regardless of your economic status. More on that in just a minute. But many of us, I would venture a guess, where we are right now, care deeply about our finances and about our things, and we are therefore unprepared to be freed from them. And this is typically evidence in our complaining about not having enough of either. Uh, When my wife and I first got married, my wife Abby and I, our entire monthly budget was $500, which if you recall from the previous illustrations is a tremendous amount compared to so many people in the world. Um, It sounds like a little bit to a lot of us. Uh, I didn't make much money as a musician and an author, but the cost of living in Georgia, where we lived at the time, was quite low, so we spent our nominal income on groceries and rent and whatever the basic utilities were, and that was it, and it was gone. We didn't go out to eat or out to do anything that cost money or buy things for ourselves ever. That's not an exaggeration. And not only were we happy, uh, we hardly even thought about money. It came in, it did the thing it was supposed to do, and then it was gone. And then years later, I landed a more traditional gig working at a church, um, one that has a paycheck that actually arrives on a, you know, a timetable. And suddenly I was aware of what other people were paid and how it contrasted my own income. And suddenly I could buy things and it only served to remind me of all the things I couldn't buy because I didn't have enough money and enough stuff. And so I propose there's an equation that is often at work here, and it goes something like this. Increase of money and possessions equals increase of concern for money and possessions. Increase of concern for money and possessions equals decrease of contentment with money and possessions. Or, adversely, it works this way. Decrease of money and possessions can equal decrease of concern for money and possessions, and decrease of concern for money and possessions equals contentment with money and possessions. The more you own the harder it can become to free yourself from it. It's not impossible, not at all, 
but it can be very difficult. And that is why I assume most of us are not yet prepared for the kind of generosity that I described exemplified by this fellow in California. And because, listen, because we think, well, sure, it's easy to be generous when you have it all, but let me propose to you an ironclad test of how you would handle more money than you have right now. If you are not generous with little, you will not be generous with much. If you're not generous with a little bit, you will absolutely not be generous with much. Whatever your season of financial stability or lack thereof, if you do not live in such a way that your money and your possessions are not yours, you will not live that way when you have more of it. In all likelihood, you will exemplify less generosity the more you acquire. The key, I think, is letting it go, no matter how much you have. Um, artists, I think, are a group more apt to understand the corrupting power of money. I can think of several stories uh, to bother with you guys with. Here's a couple. If you're like me, a child of the 80s, you probably remember one of the century's greatest works of art, which was an ongoing comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, okay, great. Fans, yeah. Last time I was like, what? Calvin and Hobbes uh, was a newspaper comic strip. It ran from 1985 to 1995. And during the strip's decade tenure, and really more than 20 years later, it endures as a subject of broad popularity and influence and academic interest. And at the helm of the comic strip was this reclusive genius called Bill Watterson. He rarely granted interviews or did press or appeared in any sort of public outlet whatsoever. There's like two existing photographs of him, and they're terribly dated. Now, not unlike other popular comic strips, you know, Garfield or Peanuts or whichever one you've heard of, Calvin and Hobbes was published in newspapers by a syndicate. That's how it made its way around the world. And given the incredible enthusiasm for the strip, the syndicate was understandably interested in licensing Calvin and Hobbes for merchandising purposes, just like Garfield or Peanuts or whatever. But Bill Watterson rejected the idea with utmost contempt. Eventually, he prepared to quit the strip even though the syndicate could legally replace him with a new cartoonist and just take his creation away from him. Of the ongoing debacle, Watterson wrote this, to put the problem simply, train loads of money were at stake. Millions and millions of dollars could be made with a few signatures. Most cartoonists are more than eager for the exposure and wealth and prestige that licensing offers. When cartoonists fight their syndicates, it's usually to make more money, not less. By the strip's fifth year, the debate had gone as far as it could possibly go, and I prepared to quit. If I could not control what Calvin and Hobbes stood for, the strip was worthless to me. At this point, the syndicate agreed to renegotiate my contract. The exploitation rights to the strip were returned to me, and I will not license Calvin and Hobbes. This means that any merchandise you have ever seen for Calvin and Hobbes is an illegal bootleg at the behest of the creator. Now, ask yourself, does this inspire or frustrate you? Regardless of the situation, the specifics, how much money he did or didn't have, do you, ad do you find this admirable or foolish? This is a man who understands that the luxury of wealth can come at a great price, and in this case, he was simply unwilling to pay it. Here's one more interesting story that I think is funny um, for you guys. In 1992, uh, Nirvana was the biggest rock band in the world. Uh, their second album, Nevermind, had sold upwards of 30 million copies worldwide. Uh, for comparison by, you know, today's popular albums, let's say by like a Taylor Swift, they sell about 10 million copies less than the Nirvana album. That's 20 million copies in a worldwide sense. So frustrated with their own success, Nirvana sought out this uh, legendary engineer named Steve Albini to produce what would become their final album. And Albini agreed, but on one big condition that he cited in a now famous letter that he wrote to the band prior to the recording. He said, I do not want 
and will not take a royalty on any record I record. No points, period. I think paying a royalty to a producer or engineer is ethically indefensible. <laughs> I would like to be paid like a plumber. I do the job, and you pay me what it's worth. The record company will expect me to ask for a point or a point and a half. If we assume three million sales, that works out to $400,000 or so. There's no bleeping way I would ever take that much money. I wouldn't be able to sleep. Now, the album went on to sell more than 15 million copies worldwide. That's a lot more than the you know, three that he guessed at or whatever. And really, I tell these stories uh, for shock value, honestly. Here is someone who is offered a great deal of money that they don't need, and they simply say, no thanks. Regardless of the specifics and the semantics of their situation, I think that's often jarring for folks like you and I. But I so hope that we as disciples of Jesus would begin to understand that conviction and to de develop that resolve in our own Jesus-centric way. At the heart of this new relationship that Jesus' disciples will have with money and possessions is a letting go, a bottoming out, a liberation from the tentacles of stuff. And of course, this is easier said than done. It seems to me that such a thing takes time, and you guessed it, it takes practice. So to end tonight, I want to offer just a few pragmatic pieces that we might use to follow in Jesus' example. The first is this, own nothing for display and display nothing you own. And by this, I don't mean that you should like reject interior design or you know, that a framed picture of your family is evil or something like that. I do mean that you should adamantly reject the desire to showcase your money and your stuff. Some scholars note the connection of Jesus' teaching on money to his previous trio of warnings against acts of generosity and prayer and fasting done for the acclaim of people rather than for the attention of God. And in this sense... It isn't just the danger against treasure, which Jesus commands. He's also warning against the desire for the sort of acclaim that comes from having money and stuff. In other words, Jesus is commanding his disciples not to desire and pursue treasure on earth for treasure's sake, while also commanding his disciples not to desire being noticed for their treasure on earth. And you realize, of course, that the world of social media exists largely for the direct purpose of being noticed for your treasure on earth. You know, the musty cellar floor that is social media is a sinister cesspool of insecurity and dishonesty. And it's a wash, it's a trick, it's a scam. Uh, recently, my wife told me that she often wonders how differently people might shop if they were somehow forbidden from showcasing their purchases on Instagram. And when and if you do have money and things, you will never develop a healthy indifference to and detachment from those things if you are concerned with other people seeing them. So resist the urge to display your possessions or your home or your trip or your moment that seems so perfect on the internet, whatever it might be. That's suggestion number one. Suggestion number two is this. Spend more on others than you do on yourself. I mentioned earlier that my wife Abby and I once led a decidedly simple lifestyle because that's all we had. Uh, it was a circumstantial type of thing. So when we found ourselves in a season of options, things became decidedly complicated. We never went out to eat or bought things for ourselves simply because we used all our money on rent and groceries. We couldn't do that if we wanted to. So what do you do when you pay the bills and for the first time ever discover there's more money left over? There's money to spare. Uh, years ago, we sat down together and we decided we'd like to set a budget, which is also a good thing. You should do that, by the way. For the first time in our lives, we decided that we would budget for what we called like an allowance for ourselves so that we could do things we didn't do before, like go out to eat or see a movie or buy the occasional thing. And we set a specific dollar amount for that. But to curb that luxury, we set a second dollar amount much higher than the first 
And that money we had to spend on other people, you know, for our church, for a sponsor kid, uh, for a couple of charities that we like, for treating people that we love out to the occasional meal or picking up someone's coffee, whatever it might be. And maybe that like sounds noble or impressive. I don't know, maybe it doesn't. But really, our need for such a thing became evident almost immediately when for the first time I could buy something for myself and I was almost immediately frustrated by my inability to buy more. Uh, And so our budget forced us to confront what was inside all along. It was just dormant. And when it came to the surface, we had to find a way to suffocate it. So we imposed limitations so that we could actually point to a quantifiable number and know that we'd given more away than we'd allowed ourselves to take. And then soon, traces of our old lifestyle, a time when we were content with less, began to make their way back into our moods and everyday disposition. And shortly thereafter, now more content we began to get rid of stuff, which is my next suggestion. Get rid of stuff, stuff that you don't want to get rid of but should. Uh, When you restrict yourself from excess, you realize excess is not only useless, it's actually a bummer. Uh, My disposition is materialistic by nature, across the board. My tastes are specific, but it's materialistic just the same. Like I like to buy and own movies and records and books and specifically, and left to my own devices, I do so excessively. Of course, you know, owning a movie or an album or a book is not inherently sinful, per se, but materialism is like this cruel cycle. The more I had, the more seduced I became with the prospect of having, and I admired my own collections, and I wanted them to be admired by other people. I wanted to be known as the guy who had a million movies and a big library and a beautiful collection of records. I like to think about what I might buy next, and realizing this... I decided that in order to break the spell my possessions had cast on me, I needed to get rid of a lot of them. And when I imposed on, then I imposed on myself a much stricter rubric for when and if I actually might buy something. And, and I doubt I could have done that without first undergoing the shock therapy of purging a ton of stuff that I didn't want to get rid of but needed to. Now, I've you know, never been what many of you might call a fashionable fellow, but sometimes people are like, oh, why do you wear the same clothes every day? Are they clean? Um, unless it's Christmas and then I have a sweater. But uh, there was a time when I actually enjoyed and sought after my own version of a desirable wardrobe. And when I realized the stock that I had placed on my clothes, I decided to get rid of all of them and narrow down my closet to a single outfit. And it's not because I'm so above materialism. It's because I'm susceptible to it. See, uh, minimalism as a fad, as like this hip aesthetic is fine. It's actually, there's a lot of it's really great, but it will only carry you so far. Fads like possessions themselves, are perishable. If you're compelled to give up money and possessions because it will make your house cuter or because it affords you a new subculture with which to identify, you're simply replacing the love of treasures on earth with the love of a trend, which is another kind of treasure on earth, a new idolatry. Breaking the the hold your stuff has on you offers you a unique perspective. And you can finally step back to see all that you have is not only fleeting, but ultimately it's not yours at all which is my next tip. Treat your belongings as though they weren't yours. Disciples of Jesus believe that everything belongs to God. Now, I don't believe that everything that happens is determined by God, not by a long shot, including your economic status. But I do believe that in the language of the scriptures, sometimes you have stuff for a good reason, or in the language of the scriptures, every good and perfect gift is from above. And we mentioned earlier, these gifts have a built-in expectation of generosity. God's concern in giving is not that we would have, but that we would do as he does and give. If you have more than you need and you make no effort to redistribute that excess to those in need, I believe it's kind of like you're stealing 
from your brothers and sisters who are in need. Thus the great tension of having and giving. Again, this from Greg Boyd. He writes, kingdom economics, receive blessings without any guilt and share blessings without any reservations. My final piece of advice is this. Begin your journey to mastery of your wealth now. Do not say to yourself, when I have more, I will master it. Or do not say to yourself, when times aren't quite as tough, I will be generous. Begin tomorrow morning with your next purchase, with your next budget item, with your plan for the coming month, for the coming year. If you have what is, for your context, not a lot, learn to be generous with what you have. To give more than you take. Every one of us can absolutely do that. Live as though what you have is not yours to keep. And listen, that training will follow your economic journey so that no matter how much or how little you own, it will not own you. And finally, to end tonight, I want to remind us that Jesus does contrast his prohibition against storing up treasures on earth with the command to instead store up treasure in heaven. And on the nature of these alternate treasures, Dallas Willard writes this, The treasure we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. We can and should draw upon it as needed, for it's nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom interwoven in my life. What is most valuable for any human being without regard to an afterlife is to be a part of this marvelous reality, God's kingdom now. If I had to choose between good credit with a bank and good credit with God, I would not hesitate a moment. By all means, let the bank go. How do we do this? I believe the answer is actually quite simple. To practice the way of Jesus is to store up treasure in heaven. To invest in generosity rather than greed. To deliberately choose simplicity when excess feels desirable. To prioritize the spiritual disciplines over shopping. To spend more time in prayer than you would staging the perfect uh, social media shot to brag about your lifestyle and the things that you have. All of this is what it means to store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. And maybe for your wiring or your season of life, you know, the idea of like wild shopping or fabricating a persona on Instagram is not exactly a pressing temptation. Maybe that's like not your crowd or not your bag or not your generation, whatever it might be. Maybe for you, the lure is comfort and security or nicer things or luxury. And the beautiful, albeit frightening, invitation of Jesus is to give all of that up in favor of something better. And the way of Jesus is not lucrative, it's not comfortable, it's not a promising route to safety and security. In fact, Jesus repeatedly assures his disciples that should they take up with him, they could likely face poverty or persecution or discomfort or danger or distress, but they will know God and they will be known by God. And in this, they will have treasures so precious, so valuable, that it will expose all our clamoring for more money and more stuff and more recognition as the futile charade it really is. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And I want to close by reading a very short parable of Jesus over you guys tonight. It appears later in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus describes a person who has seen a glimpse of God's coming kingdom, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. May we find that treasure, God, and may we forfeit all we have to gain it. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and speak over us.